Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Genzel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is an interview series in which I talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies, from cult movie directors to character actors, from seasoned veterans to brilliant newcomers, from celebrated artists to filmmakers who haven't received the recognition they deserve. These folks have lots of fascinating stories to tell. Today's guest is director and screenwriter Joshua Michael Stern, best known for his 2013 biopic of Steve Jobs, starring Ashton Kutcher, and his 2016 TV series Graves, starring Nick Nolte as a former president of the United States. In our conversation, we focus on Stern's 2008 movie Swing Vote, which stars Kevin Costner as a working class man who suddenly finds himself in a very curious position. Through several circumstances, the outcome of the current presidential election will depend on his vote. And so both political parties try to win him over by tailoring their campaigns to what they think will appeal to this one individual person. A satirical movie about the election process, Swing Vote emphasizes the importance of voting and engaging with politics. And so our discussion of the film quickly opened up to include many of the issues of the political reality of today's America. The conversation was recorded at the end of September, and we mentioned yesterday's debate a couple of times, which refers, of course, to the first TV debate of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Joshua talks about the necessity of being involved, the ideas of democracy and the challenges it's currently facing, the impact of social media, the themes of his work, and much more. The interview was conducted in connection with our German-language companion podcast Lichtspielplatz. If you speak German, go to www.lichtspielplatz.at where you'll find an in-depth discussion of Swing Vote in episode number 44. If you enjoy my conversation with Joshua Michael Stern, make sure to check out our other interviews at talkingpicturespodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and the podcast platform of your choice. So here's Talking Pictures with Joshua Michael Stern. So yeah, Swing Vote. Um, from, from what I've heard, uh, the, the movie was very much inspired by the 2000 election um, where it came down to a couple of hundred votes between uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore in Florida. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about the genesis of uh, the film? Yeah, um, boy, that feels like it's such a long time ago now, uh, 2000. But yeah, we, my, my writing partner and I were uh, woke up and... Uh, couldn't imagine that the vote for the United States uh, president came down to so few votes being ca counted by people in Florida and eventually decided by the courts. And it just became one of those inspirational moments where you uh, sort of come to the conclusion that this is a great movie or it's a great, you know, at that time, a great movie. Um, and uh, so we went about trying to figure out how can you distill that big idea down to its essence. And that's what I think so many uh, movies do in, in the end, is you take the big idea and then how do you make it into its neatest package that you can sort of grasp onto, and which brought us to what if the election came down to one person's vote and how w would the culture deal with that? How would both sides, all the political machines of the Republicans and the Democrats come together to try to court this one man's vote? And what would they give up? And what would they um, sacrifice? What ideals would they, um, well, we're dealing with that a lot right now, but what, what are their, their bedrock of their foundational ideals would they give up to get that vote to win power? So that, that's, that's the genesis of the, the idea. Then we wrote it uh, together, Jason Richmond and I, 
and um, basically, you know, got Kevin Costner attached to it. And then Disney came aboard and it was one of those, it's how you got a movie made, but uh, that's the basis of how, how it came to us. Mm -hmm. Now I find the casting of Kevin Costner very interesting because he is, He's like the all-American actor. I have this biography of Kevin Costner that came out in Germany um, when he got famous, and it's called Kevin Costner, The Last American Hero. Um, <laughs> and, and he gets compared with people like Gary Cooper and James Stewart, and they're people who um, you know, always represented ideals uh, in their characters, and you could sort of count on the fact that they were doing the right thing. And of course, Kevin Costner has done a lot of movies about American history and American politics and everything. So was that a, 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 something you were going for to, to cast Costner with this kind of history? Yeah, I mean, I think on some level there was something interesting about the, the drift of his persona um, and his, his, the character that he created in the zeitgeist. Um, and it was interesting to flip that on its head, you know, because a lot of the American heroes that we, you talked about, they're damaged, but they're usually damaged by outside forces. You know, they were in a war or there's some kind of major event that created their character flaw. Um, in this movie, he drank too much and he was a terrible father, which was more of an internalized flaw, a flaw that um, we have less sympathy for generally. So for a character like that, for an actor like that, I think for him, he saw it as an opportunity um, to be this guy who wasn't the smartest guy, who wasn't the most um, responsible guy. And I think there was something very Capra-esque about this story that I loved. Um, it's funny you mentioned the people you mentioned, but I, 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 I love Capra and, I, and to me there was something at the time that we made it, something very Capra-esque. Now it would be considered very, even in 10 years or, eight or you know, whatever, 12 years, it, it, it would be considered very quaint. But at the time, there was something very Capra-esque and a way to deal with big issues and about the ordinary person doing extraordinary things and and the power of the individual and all those great ideals that we have that, seem to get lost often in, in our politics and in our culture that we're experiencing now in the United States. But in many ways that at the time uh, felt like Kevin could represent that because he always sort of did represent the everyman, but who was the hero? He was the cowboy everyman, but he was the hero cowboy. He was the baseball player, but not just the super, he was, you know, he always played the everyman hero. So that was something interesting. So that is, that was, that did sort of, contribute to to the creative impulse to cast him mm -hmm. yeah and also um as one of the candidates um dennis hopper um as yeah. uh, greenleaf i mean with with a name like this you got to be an environmentalist i guess <laughs> but dennis hopper also he represents so much of you yeah. know the, the whole counterculture era the new hollywood yeah. era yeah he does and you know he wasn't the obvious choice because he was a little uh he represented the sort of outside of Hollywood. He always ex was sort of more what you'd consider to be the troublemaker or the insider. And so, but there was something about the fact that he did kind of represent that man, hey, what's going on? And that he became president one day was, or could become president one day, was very interesting for us. Um, and so, you know, up against Kelsey Grammer, who was playing the Republican, which made a lot of sense because he's got that sort of 
you know, staunch conservatism sort of presentation as, as an actor, if you wanted to say that. I think his ideals align a little bit Republican as well, so there was something fun there to be played with. So that was an interesting pair-up between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also interesting when you see Dennis Hopper, because um, in, in a lot of other films, he's, he played the villain. Um, or in a film like Super Mario Brothers, he played the fascist uh, dictator. <laughs> and then yeah. here you see him as a liberal. Um, but there's something, he, he seems a little bit sort of detached from that. And that makes perfect sense because he's, he's sort yeah. of making it up as he goes along. Um, just, you know, saying whatever he thinks that the Costner character yeah. would want to hear. He was, ve- and he was very, he was not, he was very, un- he was very unhappy with me at the end of it. Because there was a there was a, there was stuff we had to cut from the film that I now you know when you make edits you when you're and sometimes the edits don't aren't your decisions they're the studio decisions or the producerial decisions but there was a couple of scenes that I just loved for both both Kelsey Grammer and for Dennis that had to be cut from the film it was just too long at the time and Kelsey's scene which I was one of the best scenes scenes I've ever shot and I was very upset that I I cut it uh, he was doing peyote with some Native Americans and his spirit animal was the elephant, which is the symbolism of the Republicans. And then we had an elephant walking through the desert. It was a wonderful scene. And then, but Dennis Hopper had a scene where he was talking to a church full of uh, Hispanic immigrants, um, which was very apropos to what was going on now, to be honest with you. But at the time it was just, we just had to cut it for time. And he was very, very upset about it. And I, I don't blame him. I would have been upset too. You know, these are the, the decisions that get made in creating a film. So, so it was, that was a little bit of a shame at the end. And, uh, but ultimately he's, he was great. He was great. Hmm. Yeah, I think they both make very believable candidates. And, yeah. Um, yeah. What I find interesting about um, the film is that it, it, on one hand, it's a satire. I mean, both of them are in a way ridiculed in the way that they sort of throw out all of their ideals and, you know, bend to the will of one person or what they think this one person wants. But on the other hand, they're very believable people and they have transformation in the end of the movie and they're respected as serious politicians. So I think that's an interesting balance because you could have gone for a, for an all out satire um, it, the way that mo- a movie like Bullworth, for example, did or Wag the Dog. Uh, political satires usually don't allow the candidates to be seen as actual serious candidates. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. I mean, I think that was important to try to create an environment where they were really dealing with issues that were real to them and that questioned their own moral compass and the reasons why they are politicians to begin with. Because so much of politics is taken over by issues that are bigger than the reasons that they got into politics to begin with. And that is something that I think every politician struggles with. I think that it's, we, we in America, for example, vilify or we're, we're, in a, we're in a historical period where we see Republicans that are supporting Trump and we don't understand why they're not standing up. You could still be a Republican. You could still hold on to your ideals and your conservatism and you could, but yet you could say what this man does and what he said. And, you know, he had a debate last night. He refused to condemn racism and all the things that you want him to condemn you could say i don't believe in what you're saying 
but I hold on, but I'm still a Republican, a conservatism, but none of them really do. But that's because the nature of their politics and their elections are dictating their behavior. Politics is one of those strange, not only professions, but ways of life in that you're, the impetus and the trigger and the flame that starts you off as a politician is always your own personal desire to change the status quo and to make a difference and to affect law and change like that, that comes from within you. It always is because it's too hard a road, a road unless you have that flame as a young person. And almost always, whether you're the left or the right or the center, it's the same flame, but almost immediately that flame starts to come, it starts to be, it's almost like the opposite. Then the wave, the water from the public and the expectation then hits you and you start to be, you become driven by those things. You know, the thing about certain candidates that whether you like them or you don't like them, whether they're Republican or the Democrat, whether you like Bernie Sanders in the United States or you don't like, you can say there's a line from when he was 18 years old to when he's 80 years old, the same line. And you can respect that. You can say, I don't like democratic socialism. You could say, I don't, but you have to respect that. And I, and I feel the same way about Republicans, you know, I mean, so, and in your country, you know, in Europe is experiencing that as well on some level, that there's a, a sense that you want to, believe that your politicians have a moral compass and they believe what they, whether you want to vote them out or not, you, you don't want to believe that they are beholden to other interests. You know? mm-hmm. I'm sorry I got off on that. But those were the things that were in my brain. You know, in our, my brain when I was writing the scenes, you know, when you have the character who is not for abortion, but here's something that is for abortion, or the character who is not for uh, immigration then becomes for immigration. And that's the, the ebb and the flow. You know, it's the flow of what, you know, right now we're in a big anti-immigration, an immigrant uh, phase in history in, in the United States and in Europe. And believe me, it's going to go the other way. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to go back and forth. Um, and it's very divisive among people too. And it's very divisive among families. Absolutely. And I, I think what's interesting about swing vote and what also makes it relevant, of course, today, um, I mean, swing vote is, is what you call it bipartisan swing vote doesn't tell you, oh, this is the good side. Right. This is the bad side. Right. Um, and in the end, you don't even learn what his vote, uh, what his vote was. Um, you don't hear the debate and you're not sure who he voted for. Um, you don't hear the outcome of the election. Um, and it ends on the note that when he says both are sort of excellent uh, men, I, I, I'm, I, I stand here before these brilliant men, so, uh, something like that um, is the quote. Um, and and I, I felt the point of the movie was that the, um, the participation is what's important, not the the individual candidate, but the participation in the process. Yeah, I think you're right. That's your I, your questions are very well thought, and and I appreciate that. That was what it was about. It was about the participation. It was about it. You know, it's about affecting the change in your own environment, in your own country, in your in your own um, you know making a decision for yourself and getting, you know, engaged in the process because it's very, very important. And then in the United States, as we saw with the last election and with this election, I mean, we, I'm sure you've heard about all of the questions about the mail-in ballots. Have you know mm. if you've heard about that on the news? Yeah. 
it's the same issue. We're dealing with the same issue swing vote d- dealt with, which is voting, which is which you would think would be settled. That's settled. We all get to vote. That should be settled in a democracy, right? That's actually not settled. That in our country, and you know, our country is a is a ragtag bunch of misfits from all across the globe historically, who are the bedrock of which is a certain almost um, a, 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 an independence that's fractured because we don't have a national, we don't have you know a singular national pride or a single national history that connects us all like Europeans where this is you could draw a line from our history but wherever we are on it we are you know and that makes for a very difficult very difficult way of governing and so the threat to elections is the is the singular biggest threat to the democracy here because it is factional you know it is um it is it's no it's no it's no different and no no it's really no different than something that's tribal in a weird way it's like this these people will try to to do their best to keep down these people from voting but when the other people are in power you know they'll you know it, it's it's a strange but yeah i mean to me it's all about it was you know swing vote was all about you know the the necessity to be involved in the process and that you cannot underestimate your your singular vote because you know there are votes that have come down to a hundred ballot and in, in, in senate races it has come down to like 20 ballots sometimes yeah. now imagine the you know the hundreds of people that didn't vote that day and you know what kind of candidate did you get because it's all about you know your best interests you know um I don't want to go into, you know, I can go on politics forever, but, you know, one of the things that, that especially the Republicans were very effective of doing historically with the American elections was getting a whole swath of the electorate to vote against their best self-interest. That means that whether, you know, you, you find the issues whether they're the social issues or the, the, the nationalistic issues that are issues that are theoretical issues, that are not issues that affect the individual. The individual will be helped by health care and all the great things that a government can do for an individual. But you'll get that person to vote against those things that are good for them because you get them all angry about this other issues that don't really affect their job or life, but that gets them all nationalistically upset. So they'll vote for the person that won't give them the things that help their family, but it'll, but, but somehow it makes them feel a certain amount of uh, pride against what they perceive as an enemy that was created to get their vote. You know, so anyway, those are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have this quote by, by Winston Churchill. I'm sure you're familiar with it, where he said that um, it has been said that um, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other forms that we've tried. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's a brilliant quote. It's a brilliant quote. Um, it's very much, it's, it's very much the truth. And what's interesting about Trump is that he, it's testing all of the founding fathers, um, uh, oversights that were built into the constitution. The one, the, the couple of the, what we're discovering are being the, the weaknesses are in the judicial, I mean, in, in the attorney, you know, they never conceived, for example, of there being a president with a Senate, a presidency, and also a, a, you know, a judicial system that was all aligned against. 
that is the one. Oh, oh, oh now we will pivot and there'll be laws that will be passed and there'll be more oversight that we create. But it, you know, everything is a work in progress as certainly everyone knows. And, you know, Germany, which has is, is, is become almost a model of, um, you know, uh, economic and social model right now. Uh, you know, you, you go through there, you go through the waves of it and, you know, um, yeah, it's always difficult that um, democracy has principles that allows people um, who want to abolish democracy sort of to, to rise within that system. And um, like you say, they try the, um, the foundations of that system to find sort of the, the loopholes, how to demolish that system. Um, and, 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 and some of the loopholes, loopholes we're discovering is the evolution of, of social media and the internet, because what that's allowed is it's, it's, it's allowed for there to be not only disinformation, which not only affects our elections, but I will start to affect, you know, especially in Germany and other places through Russia elections through Facebook and other places, but it allows for those who are not as um, educated in what, the processes to be affected by a completely fictional alternate set of facts and history, completely alternate set of facts and history. And that's going to start affecting the globe and the world. If you have a whole bunch of people in parts of your country that don't have as much of an education, but they're on their phone all day and their phone is giving them their education, then that education could be anything. And I used to have with my, my son, I used to be able, I used to say, you know, I would, and I, you know, I would say it's so easy when you have a child to tell them that the color green is the color blue because they'll believe it's the color blue. It's just what you tell them and they'll believe it forever. They won't, you'll, they'll, you'll have to re-educate them for them to, you know, if, if you keep on saying blue, blue, blue. It's the same thing with all of this stuff. It's about how do you convince something, somebody that's, you know, there's this whole uh, group here called QAnon, which believes mm. that liberals are cannibals and they are... <laughs> You know, they eat babies. Literally, they eat mm -hmm. babies. But if that's all you've told a child from the time they're 9 to 17, how do you tell that 18-year-old it's not true? Mm. <laughs> it's because that's what they know. It's like religion, you know. You, you, you know, it's in them. Yeah. I'm sorry to go off on that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so absurd from the outside. But when you're on the inside, and that's the information that you get, and that's the information that sort of makes sense to you. Um, also, in yeah. your group, um, I think groups are also a very important part of this. Um, yeah. And this is where social media kicks in, obviously, because it allows people to connect with other people um, who sort of share these ideas or yeah. can sort of magnify those ideas. And I think the, yeah. the, um, the mail-in voting uh, issue that, that you brought up, um, I think this is one of those things. Um, I mean, I've, I've watched the debate, too, and um, I mean, this has been an issue. This has been something that he's brought up um, over and over again in the past couple of months. Um, it feels like it's something that is just, he says it's a problem. He says there is potential fraud. Um, and, and that's how he creates this idea. It's, it, it hasn't been a problem at all in all of the years that mail-in voting has been in existence. But you sort of start telling people that there is such a thing and then you find enough people who believe in it. And then at one point it becomes sort of impossible to, to, to abandon that idea. No, it's true. And, you know, and not to, to create historical parallels, 
but there are so many historical problems. We are not immune to where other countries have been, including Germany and other countries historically, where you have had a leader who has infected the thought with ideas that, um, uh, with good people and people who are generally morally found, sound, they may be uh, not doing as well economically. They may not be, you know, they may be more apt to be swayed and to find a problem where there is no problem. But when you get that into the zeitgeist, once it takes hold, it's very, very, very hard to let go of. And then even people around the leader who are the people who are more the um, rational people, they start getting fired and taken away. And then you surround that leader like Trump is now with people who are just, just from the, some of them are just buffoons. They're just, you know, people who have no reason to run anything. And they're confused by the leader because they don't know what he's saying, but they don't want to question him until it gets too late, until it gets, things go too far, and then eventually it corrects itself. And, you know, the, this election for a lot of people is we can't let it get too far. I mean, we, 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 you know, we're, there's a, I mean, we still have children in these cages on the border of Mexico, you know. I mean, being, you know, the, the, the separated from parents and psychologists that are being brought in, thousands of them who are just destroyed human beings now, you know. And we, these are all, we're not even talking about those things anymore because there's so many other issues. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so this is where the, you already said that the idea of, of and, and swing, swing vote is, yeah. is almost quaint these days. Um, oh, so totally when quaint, I watched yeah. the debate, I was thinking of the end of swing vote where you have two very viable candidates in a way. Um, and it's sort of a, you know, this is how democracy works. And then you see a debate like the one that uh, we've seen yesterday where all of that gets thrown out of the window. So I was wondering if you, if you, if, if you made a movie like Swing Vote today, what would it look like? It would be angrier. It would be, it would be, the character of Bud in Swing Vote was the character of the uninformed American on some level. It wasn't somebody who was ill-intentioned. He just didn't ever care about the process. He never really wanted to educate himself on who was doing what. Um, I think if I were to do him today, I would have him be angrier and I would have him be somebody who was finding scapegoats and, and reasons to be angry in our culture and people to blame for his own anger and his own lot in life, his own position, his own lack of employment, because you're always looking for someone to blame. And the reality is, is that for most people who blame immigrants and so on, the jobs that the immigrants take that before the immigrants arrived, that person would never have taken that job. Mm. Never. I mean, there's no job that's being taken that that person wouldn't have gotten. That person didn't get the job on their own merits or lack of merits. And so it would be a, it would be a real discussion about uh, what is somebody who doesn't have the information, but it's also being given false information you know, deprogram his brain to see what's real and not real. I mean, that, that would be the difference. It would be an angrier, meaner movie. It would not be as, you know, in those days we were dealing with issues of, you know, I mean, you know, George Bush getting elected. And I think that there was a lot of pushback on George Bush's presidency and the lack of evidence with 
weapons of mass destruction and all the things that at the time and still just seemed so mag you know so magnified like in such such the sins that you know that the, of what occurred in those administrations feel almost still quaint they feel like the last century sins you know we shouldn't have fought that war and prisoners of war shouldn't be treated badly i mean that was all we were talking about prisoners of war for most of bush was well, how do you you know should we use waterboarding which is a terrible no the answer is no but that was what we were that was the only thing we were talking about was what do you do in war and how do you treat prisoners it almost felt like a, you know a, 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 an argument you could have had you know, in the 40s. I mean, it wasn't like what we're dealing with now, which was trying to trying to feel out what is the direction of our country and in which in 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 and how do we want to protect the things that are important to us and not lose them. Now, as human beings, we tend to amplify things. We tend to say not understand that this time will pass and you have this meter in your brain that says when when is it going to get really scary and for a lot of americans right now especially after last night's debate i mean things are really scary and the pandemic let's let's talk about the pandemic that doesn't help us you know because right. his lack of wanting people to wear masks and all those things that are just so strange they're they're more strange than political you know right. It's the it's the same issue when I was talking about how people vote against their own interests. He has gotten millions of Americans to believe that the rituals that will save their life are rituals that take away their freedom. So there, he's basically gotten people to believe that by wearing a mask that which saves their lives is actually something akin to slavery. Now you'd think that's impossible to get Americans to believe. He's gotten many to believe that. And that is almost brilliant. I mean, you think about it, it's its own, everybody says he's not a genius. You got to, genius isn't always a, a positive thing. It's a brilliant <laughs> use of his um, psychosis, which is uh, infects and, and, and has people able to believe that. So I think swing vote was sort of a nascent, my, my beginning in my political, um, speaking out politically of, of what could happen when people sort of when the when the candidates uh, sort of get, let go of their moral compasses and their ideals in order to get a vote, one vote, um, and so that's just it's coming to fruition. <laughs> it's true. That's an that's an interesting point. That maybe what we see today is what swing vote would have looked like um, if it hadn't been for the redemption that the characters um, experience through the movie. If you, if you sort of uh, take this idea of swing vote to the nth degree and, you know, the candidates are doing more and more things to win over voters and throwing more and more ideals overboard, then maybe you arrive at something that looks like uh, today. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's true. I think that uh, it, it It, it was already discussing what would happen uh, if you threw away what was good and right for the vote. But it, it wasn't really dealing with the issue of a president that could have no good or right, no wrong or right. And 
that is where it gets scarier today. But to me, it was sort of an omen of, for things to come. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I still find myself in debates whether um, he is insane or brilliantly manipulative. And that the answer is always, we, we don't know. We, we just have no idea of... I think that he's, I think that what was interesting about the Woodward book was how normal he seemed in the interviews. If you mm -hmm. listen to those, he was talking to him saying, oh yeah, it's a scary pandemic. People are dying. I don't get near people. It's so much worse than the flu. It affects the old people and the young people. And then he went out in February and said, don't worry about it. No one's going to die. It's going to go away like magic. He's aware. He's more, I think we'll learn he's more conscious than he, we think he is. And that will make him scarier. Um, and but he's also the monster that he is. He's born this way. He was always this way. In the in, you know in the in the TV industry that I'm in, in the movie industry, he was always seen as just this huckster and a con. He was always a con man in real mm -hmm. estate. People never. But what's scarier, always, no matter where you are in history, isn't the madman. It's the people who do know wrong from right, but make the choice. Mm -hmm to be Trump. These people are choosing to be Trump. Trump is Trump. He can't help himself. Look, look last night at that debate. He's just the monster that he is, if you want to call him that, or he's just the brilliant man that he is, if you want to call him that. But the people who are around him, who support him, are people making a choice to be that. They're not that. They weren't born to be that. They choose to be that. And that's where it gets scary. Because when you can have enough people choosing to be that, that's when, you know, Mm. it's when you know someone was saying you know your 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 culture your country isn't in, in 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 trouble when you have a president like this your country is in trouble when the institutions that were put into place stop working the institutions that were put into place stop working that you know it's like when the mail starts to get affected when the judicial starts to get affected when the military starts to when the institutions around him start to crumble it's when everybody starts to get nervous. We have a very high tolerance as a culture, as human beings, for a eccentric madman president. We have very, very little tolerance for those infrastructures around us when they start to turn, because we start, then we start to get scared, because we start to realize you don't have the police, you don't have the military, that all of a sudden the laws that used to guide the way the police treat people have changed. The way that you thought that uh, you'd get mail has changed. You thought it was safe to vote. It's not safe to vote anymore. These are institutions, and those are the things that scare people. Mm. Yeah, especially the, the, the chipping away part of it. It's not um, from one day to the other that everything has changed, but it's just a very, very slow uh, process. And right. it's... it's uh, somehow everything seems so it, it, like it's not that much of a deal um, when you see it as an isolated thing. Um, but when you see it, it in sequence, um, then yeah. it gets really worrisome. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that there's a, um, there's a, uh, a gathering. It, it's the, it's the, it's the totality of everything. It's a, t you know, and here in America when they're, you know, I often think that we are kind of, we're kind of in this bubble in America. We, are, we feel like we're immune to all of the distractions that affect other countries, um, but we're not. I mean, we are, we are just as, if anything, more susceptible. And uh, I think that we're, 
when we see things happening, it shocks us. Other countries think, oh, you know, deal with this, you know. Mm-hmm. But for us, it's it feels like a shock to the system to have to to to, to know that the government and the institutions that we love are are threatened, you know. Yeah. And it's also interesting that in America, I feel that um, it's much more of a discussion um, between the ideals of what the country could be or what it should be and the actual reality of the country. And that's, I mean, that's never the same thing, obviously, in these days. It's very, it's drifting apart very much, um, but it very much informs the discussion of, um, you know, the, the ideals that we're sort of uh, looking at. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you feel this way in your country, but it's this, it's what people are struggling with right now is people in your own family who are believing things or your friends or people that you know are supporting thing issues and a president and and policies that are so so runs against what you feel are are even within this even within the bubble of morality that you don't know if you can have a relationship anymore with them. I mean, it's, these are issues, you know, and in some ways it's good. In some ways it just tells you what's out there. It infor- All information is good information. Knowledge is power. We now know this exists. We knew it existed. Historically, Americans have known it existed. Racism has been around, for example, you know, we know it was there. Nothing was litigated and over with. It was just went underground. And now we realize, oh, it's back. It's, it's, it's like the oil that's now seeping through the soil. We now realize, oh, it's always there. Now, it's, now we gotta, now we got to deal with it. You know, now we got to handle this again as a society. And we have to litigate it again. We have to actually litigate it again. We have to think about these issues, whether there's, there's certain morality to it. You know, and you think it goes away, but it doesn't go away. And that's because the instincts of tribalism don't go away. It's because it's the same old boogeymen, the same old scapegoats that keep, and we just think we eradicate, you know, eradicate them, you know, and in, in our country, it's, it's racism and it's, um, it's a racism against the, the black culture for which, you know, um, and in your country, obviously, there's this other scape and there's things that, and you just, and sometimes things happen and you just get so frustrated because you know what it looks like. You know what it looks like. And it's just like, you can't get out from under it. You can't get, uh, you know, these videos of these, these poor black citizens being treated and killed. And for a lot of black people, they're like, what do you think's been going on? For you know, you you're all getting upset right now because we have a meme on a you know we have a video of it. I mean, come on. So I think these are just old. These are, it's the same old problems that we're just we keep on having to deal with. You know, and it's but we have to deal with them because they are problems and they're and they're wrong. You know. Now, one interest, uh, interesting aspect is I think the role of the media. Um, there is a moment in Swing Vote where one of the characters says, "This is OJ Big." Um, so I many it's it's it's, mm-hmm. it's such a huge thing that we're talking about and I actually I, I looked at some numbers and um, the OJ um, the, the the low speed chase of, of OJ that had 95 million viewers um, the verdict had 100 million viewers um, and I looked at the numbers of the presidential debates um, and that for example in 2008 the the, the, the second debate had a viewership of 63 million viewers. So it wasn't quite in that same ballpark. But yesterday's debate um, 
from what I gather, had 100 million viewers. Um, the one in 2016, the first one, Hillary against uh, Donald Trump, uh, Clinton against Donald Trump, that was 84 million, and yesterday apparently it was 100 million. So yeah. um, it's, it, we're actually in that ballpark now. Uh, this is OJ Big. It's circus. It's it's a circus. It's OJ Big. It's it's the, it's, you know, he's not. You know, when you have a when you have a a president who plays the role of a strong man. He's not a strong man. He's not a dictator, but he plays that role. I had a friend of mine who was from Venezuela and he said that, you know, the difference, you know, you know, you're in a particular culture. If you go to sleep thinking about your president and you wake up thinking about your president, then you're in a culture of a strong man. When you when, when the leader of your country is infecting your thought democracy the hallmark of democracy is that you shouldn't be thinking about that person that person should be running the country you should be thinking of them when they do policies you should turn them on to the news but you know to use obama for example i remember the last four years we would never just nothing i mean it was almost it was boring i mean you know but it was you lived your life you'd go to other places in the country and they'd say, I wake up in the morning, I, I go to bed. And as I close my eyes, I go through this thought process and he's in my brain. I wake up the next morning. The first thing I look on the news is to see what has going on with Trump. It's, it's, it's extraordinary what it's done to the psyche of, of this country. And I actually think it's at, I think Trump has affected the, the, the international scene too. I think there's a fascination with us and him that never existed before. I think foreign leaders are just baffled by him as well. And I think they are as, in a weird way, as under the spell of not understanding what to do with him as the Republicans in America. Like he's done and said things that would in the past have had a European leader denounce and rail and create entire movements because of the, just, just, just the, his, his anti-European and his, you know, his pro-Russian, all of the things that are plaguing Europe who are right next door to all the places that he talks about and that he is coddling up to these people, you know. And yet you see these other leaders still treating him, like you said before, just kind of gently and whisper, whisper, whisper. You'll catch the three of them at a, at, at, at a summit and they're kind of, and you can, you know, a little bit of eye is a fucking asshole, you know, but you can't, you, you, you never, but you publicly, what can you do? Like, what do you do with a madman? But I love it because on some level, it's a, it's a discussion about uh, um, what does a world do with a madman? And it's it's interesting to see how people react. It is it's just interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's true. And even here, I mean, not a day goes by when we don't see Donald Trump in the media. I mean, I, I watch the news, I, I, I read the news, and every day you have a new headline that says, "Well, he did this or he did that," and well, this is what we have to expect from the election, and so on and so forth. So it's it's sort of holding the whole world hostage in a way. Yeah. It, it is. It makes the world feel smaller. It, you know, when, when you realize that we're all connected, but it doesn't feel, when you have something like this, when everyone is so focused on one thing, it makes us all feel like we're in the same 
small sphere. And, you know, social media has done that as well. We are all looking at the same thing at the same time with fascination, with horror, with anticipation. I mean, it's got drama. We have a villain. We have... We have a more an old moral stalwart of the of the of the Democratic Party fighting him, who's you know the best you know the you know. We have uh, just an interesting dynamic that's very dramatic right now. That's very uh, you know it's 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 a film you know, and all of us are stuck in our houses not doing anything, so we're all watching it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's like, like a, a huge drama. Um, I, I I read a piece on the debate um, that was in one of the German newspapers um, that said that it's part stage play, part uh, boxing match, and part stage play. And the idea is that everybody just plays the role that um, they you know have been playing for the past couple of months. And especially Donald Trump, he plays the part of Donald Trump. He plays exactly the the kind of guy that his supporters would want to see. Um, it, like he's a character in a way. He said something interesting. He was asked to denounce the far-right racist mm -hmm. extremisms. And he wouldn't. And he just said, stand up and stand by. Stand by, he said. And Donald Trump knows that the American, you know, um, defense infrastructure, it's mili the military machine will not support a coup or an overtake of our government. But he also knows that his base is really interested in, he's setting up an environment where you put a distrust in the voting, distrust in mailing, and all of those things. And in, in many ways, he's um, creating a, a, a fiction, a fiction. He's writing a play. And all of his supporters are part of it. And he, if he does it correctly, it'll, it'll have the, the, the movie outcome that he wants. <laughs> But in the end, he just wants it to reflect on him. He, want, you know, he wants to, he, in the end, he's going he's gonna to be the new Fox News. He's, his, his goal all along, he never thought he'd lose, his, win, excuse me. Uh, he wants to create a, a media empire, and he'll have that. He has enough people now who will tune into his media network and not Fox when he creates a Trump network, you know, it'll just be, it'll be, and then in 10 years, you'll go to Trump instead of Fox for your news. It really will be one of those things. And um, uh, I, I, I don't know. The one thing that's interesting about the American uh, democratic sort of uh, party system, unlike the European democratic, is that it really did boil down to Republicans and Democrats too. It was, you know, and it didn't understand the subsets of that, the way that Europeans understand their subset, their socialism and all that kind of stuff. The last election was the first election where I felt, everyone felt like we have four parties in the United States. You have the Democratic, the Hillary Clinton party. You have very much the Bernie Sanders party. You have social You have social democracy, social, which is actually, to be honest, a little more European in many ways. It's just, you know, it's a, it, it, it's, it's, it's a socially democratic wing, but it's not a wing anymore. It's, it's becoming more. So there's two Democratic parties. There's two Republican parties. There is the fiscal Democrat, uh, Republicans, the, you know, the, the, the standard Republicans. And then there is the more far right Republicans. The far right Republicans, like the far right um, uh, 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 parties that have 
popped up in Europe very much so in, in, in all of your Eastern Europe, all of Europe, where we see that, you know, sometimes it's oh we've avoided that candidate and sometimes you get that candidate, but you, but it's, but so we have four parties here. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how we deal with that because we're not built for a four-party system or a multi a multi political system. Where you know really ultimately we're you know you got to fit into one box. And I think Trump has really um, exposed that. And I think Bernie, in his own way, did too. I think he exposed that in the other way. Yeah, I think it. it, it the problem with that is it helps with dividing the people because when you sort of break it down and you um, have just basically two choices, basically have just um, this guy or the alternative and that's it. Um, then that really creates a huge divide among the people. Whereas if you have like five parties and, and, and things are sort of evenly distributed among them, um, then there's much more sense of, um, the idea that, okay, this has to be a collaboration. This has to be something where we need to find compromises. And this is something where we, right. uh, where individual people have individual ideas, but that's okay because that's the bedrock of uh, democracy. Um, but not in a, in a one-on-one, one-on-one race, I think. Right. And I think you're right because it also gives the, that person who's voting a candidate for, for, who, for whom represents what they feel. And whether you win in a European election where there's multi-party systems and stuff, you at the very least know you're voting for your, for your, for your conscience. You're voting for the person who represents you. And, you know, you know, if you're in a Democrat right now and you're a far left Democrat, there is no candidate for you. You're going to vote for Biden, but you're, you know, that he doesn't represent you. And a lot of what you want represented are not mainstream thoughts. They're just too extreme. You know, the United States is just so huge. You couldn't, you couldn't, uh, you know, you couldn't uh, govern with some of it. What's so interesting about Trump is that he's governing so far right. You know, like that's what's, you know. Yeah, I think he very much defines even the votes of the other side. Like you vote for Biden if you are against Trump, not necessarily if you're for Biden, but oh, that's if you're true. against him, yeah. then that's yeah. your vote. So, um, yeah. That, that, that sort of shows you the power of that, um, yeah, of, of that absolutely. person. Yeah, true. Um, so going back to swing vote for a moment, um, I, I watched your first film, Never Was, um, and there's a very interesting line in there, which says, um, what use has this world for a king without a kingdom? Yeah. And I, I, I think that's a very interesting thought that relates to a lot of the stuff that you did, I mean, Jobs was also a king without a kingdom when he got ousted from his own company. Yeah. Um, and in a way, I think that uh, Bud Johnson and Swing Vote is also a king without a kingdom. Right. Would you agree? Right. Yeah, I do. I think that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way, but I, 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 love, I love exploring the ideals of the potential of somebody and the truth of those around them and someone with a thought that's isolated and does and has doesn't feel like there's anybody that can support who they are what they are mm-hmm. um who gets you know who is a dreamer or somebody who you know or someone who discovers their potential and finds their kingdom 
I'm, I love those tropes. I'm very I'm an Anglophile in the way that, you know, King Lear, I was about to do a film about King Lear. I did an adaptation with Anthony Hopkins, you know, that never got off the ground. But for me, these are all, and even my, my show Graves was about an ex-president and who's lost his kingdom and he finds mm-hmm. it again. You know, you're right. I mean, I, I love the ideas that, you know, you're searching for uh, greatness. So we're all searching for some mark that we want to leave in the world and searching for those who will agree with us and, and fighting those who, are, who, who don't and feeling isolated in our own ideas. I mean, I think sometimes we all feel isolated in our thoughts and we feel isolated uh, uh, within the things that we feel or, or, or believe in, no matter who you are, whether it's religion or politics or just your own thoughts, you just feel like you're not understood, you're misunderstood um, at times. So yeah, I think that is a theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it ties in with the ending of, of Jobs where he has the speech about um, the outsiders who are uh, important to this world. And again, in Jobs, there's a line that I think uh, also would... Uh, uh, could be part of swing vote where he says um, everything around you that you call life was made up by people who are no smarter than you and you can change it. You can influence it. Um, right. This idea yeah. that, that, that you have some sort of uh, power, even as a, as a single person. And it's true. I mean, that is, that is true. Trump has amplified that too. You know, the, 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 what, the people who are running things aren't smarter than you or know better than you. They have just found a way and their ego has driven them to a point where they can be affecting us. But some of the, are the smartest of us are not necessarily the people who are making the policies, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that is the truth, you know, um, and empowering yourself to do and say things and to be part of the process is, is important. And, and it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for any of us to really engage because it's, it's demoralizing and difficult and seems impossible. But, you know, in small ways, you know, we do make, we do make differences. And I think that's, that's one thing that social media has shown us, is that it doesn't take much anymore to try to make a difference, to start a website, to start an Instagram, to start a Me Too, hashtag Me Too. I mean, one person writes three words and it's a movement. You could do that. I mean, that is, if, you know, if, if, if it's important to you, you know, mm. for mo- most of us, it's not, it's just, let's get through our world and have our families and our loves and our life. And, you know. And I think swing vote speaks to that um, almost the responsibility of, um, you know, finding a way to engage with um, the world. And also swing vote was about engaging with life and your daughter and the, and, and, and being part of being present for your world, being present for your life not sleeping your life away, trying to, you know, be interested in the things that people around you are, if you're, if you're, if your children come in and they're interested in something, get interested in that, learn about that, you know, understand who they are. You know, your child is going to be the person who has, who's going to affect what's going to happen next. Understand what's going to happen next, you know, by understanding them, you know, that's important too. You know, that was what the movie, the, the heart of the movie was about a father and a daughter and about a daughter who was really engaged and a father who wasn't to the extreme on both ends. Right. But, but a little girl who just wants a dad, you know, um, but about a dad who's just, you know, lost his way in life and we all feel lost and we all feel powerless and we all feel as if we can't affect change. 
So for me, it's all about finding our ability to know that we can and getting involved in things that make us feel like we're doing something, you know. Um, I think that's a, a, a truly, I don't think an American ideal, I just think a human ideal. I think it's something that we, you know, we all, we should aspire to um, in small ways, though, in small ways. Yeah, speaking of the, the uh, father-daughter relationship, I think this also is a almost a trope in your uh, body of work, the relationships between parents and children or fathers in particular and their children never was as um, somebody trying to reconnect or deal with uh, his lost father and jobs also. I mean, he's a guy who disowns his own daughter and um, instead treats his product or his company as if it was his offspring. Yeah. I, yes. I think in, in some way, all of my work is dealing with, flawed fathers <laughs> and mm -hmm. i came from a, a, a relation i have a i have a complicated relationship with my own father so i think you know someone once said about filmmakers that you should make films about the things that you know but what they were really referring to as well if you're scorsese you write about the mean streets or you write about new york and but for a lot of us for most of us We lived very comfortable middle class lives. There isn't the colorful, you know, um, you know, a geo uh, social world to draw upon to 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 make your art. You, you but you should draw upon the things that have affected you. And for me, it was my childhood and and my the, the dynamics with my father is probably the most overarching through line to my. Um, my complication, my confusion, my, my daily struggle, you know? And so almost all of my work with zero exception, and I don't, I, I'm more aware of it now. And when you just mentioned it, I actually hadn't thought of it in the term, in the terms that you're saying, but in Graves, my TV show with Nick Nolte and, um, and the show, and the, and the shows that I've done since, uh, all of them, I think touch upon, that and i think also it's such a primary relationship i think all of us relate to it you know yeah i think also this is something that everybody um can can relate to because everybody has a relationship with their parents um, even if the oh. parents are not there that's a, a, a sort of relationship that you have to deal with um oh. and i was just thinking um when you said that you um there's a very small human theme um, I was thinking of uh, Richard Linklater's uh, movie Before Sunrise. I know it was yeah. Before Sunset where Ethan Hawke says, well, there, have, there haven't been any car chases or explosions in my life, but I still found everything very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's true. I think it's true. I think the truth about making film or art or anything is to find this, is to, to find that kernel, that glint of that glint of whatever the human experience is, whatever that little bit of your daily, whatever your experience is, is another person's experience. We are coming from a very small set of emotionals, emotions from which we respond to, you know, from anger to happiness to jealousy, all the things, depression, I mean, all the things that are guide us are, are all, the same six or five or six colors and we're all just um, painting them in different and in, in different ways but they're the same we're, we're having the same experiences the human experiences we're conditioned differently and, and, and you know 
we're affected differently, but we're still responding the same. And I think that's part of what we do as, as filmmakers or as writers, is we try to find always what is the inciting event, what is that thing that makes us go engage with each other or fight with each other, fall in love with each other or question each other, all those things. Mm. And it all comes down to your relationships, you know, and, 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 and mostly it comes down to your, your upbringing and, 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 and the foundational relationship with your parents. And that's always the, the, the thing that I'm mostly interested in films. I mean, I'm interested in all kinds of films and all kinds of plot points, but I think the relationships, that's the, always the backbone. I'm always interested in seeing relationships between people, friendship. Yeah. to deal with what you're talking about and sometimes we don't sometimes we are in a pandemic and we don't want to see a sad movie you know and i think that's what's so wonderful about film and the new media of streaming and all of the way that we get our entertainment now allows us to explore and have more of that i don't know in the end what how it'll be judged sort of the the shift from film to to TV or, you know, TV used to simply be the definition of the genre in which you wrote. You wrote TV, which was which is a which was a kind of t which a kind of script, a kind of movie, a kind of TV show. Now TV is just simply literally the device that 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 in essence brings you the entertainment. You could do a Scorsese movie like The uh, Irishman that cost two hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, so, which is not a TV movie, it, but you're seeing it through your TV. So, I mean, to me, it's a, there's a, been a real shift of definition of how we see our entertainment and get our entertainment. You know. mm-hmm. Are you still writing movies for the big screen? Or um... I am. I have another political movie I did. I was about to direct one last year with uh, Robert De Niro that, that didn't happen. Um, and then I started back to my TV uh, career. So I've been doing more TV uh now um i've got another tv show that um slowed by covid but you know this year but uh i i still i do have i have two scripts and but one of them especially which deals with um the gun issue in the united states another it's sort of another political uh, uh, uh based on a book by steve israel who was a united states congressman uh, it's a book called Big Guns, and it's just about, it's a satire, another satire about the gun industry here. So I'm working on that one. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds interesting. And it sounds yeah. like it's going to ruffle some feathers, I guess, because uh, that's... Yeah, a- I mean, it makes me a little, you know, <laughs> it, it, didn't, it didn't when I started it, but now it's like, uh, maybe we should do this one when things cool down. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't wanna, I don't know if ruffling feathers is a good thing anymore, you know? Um, well, I think, like you said, it's um, it's important to talk about things, and um, so I think it's always good to tackle subjects that um, are controversial. Otherwise, why? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, and if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I always say, you know, if you're going to fail, fail big. You know, go in with a big idea. You know, have it not work in a really 
big way. <laughs> no, don't <laughs> don't fail small. <laughs> you know. Um, I was wondering about the um, the reception of of uh, Swing Vote in in particular because I saw that it it, it wasn't really a huge hit. I read Roger no. Ebert's review, which was very good, um, but some of the other reviews were well, sort of middle of the road, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so is is it, well, I mean, you know, look, you know, you feel like it's it's really hard, and you know, even on Graves, you know, I got New York Times gave me a great review on my TV show, and then Entertainment Weekly was. Eh. I mean, I never get it's the worst thing you've ever seen, but I do think that there that that I am a little more sentimental as a screenwriter, like a more Capra esque. I feel like sometimes my my movies belong in a different era. <laughs> Um, and so I like that personally as if I like that Roger Ebert or like on my TV show, Leonard Maltin could love it. And then someone else can say, ah, it's a, you know, Nick Nolte, I can, you know, whatever, you know, I, I don't mind the diverse balance of that, uh, it, it, you know, because I'm always trying to, you know, as an artist, you're always trying to do the best you can. And it's, you know, the critics is hard. It's just really hard. But critics in the film industry are notoriously very, very difficult. But then again, we're, look, we're living in a world where if you Google, Google the top 10 to 20 films in history, right, the top, the best, they're all before 1979. What is it? Every one of them. <laughs> Which, what does that say to you? That says to you, since 1979, there's not been one director who's been able to come up with a film that will crack that list. Now, what, how, you know, it's like, so on some level, you're always in a world that's being judged. So I think that, look, and I think that a lot of, you know, newer filmmakers are finding different angles into the old, into the old ways of thinking. And, um, and so I'm a little more old fashioned. So I think I'll always have a bit of a, and I also deal with bigger concepts. And, the, and, and you know, it's when you are a, a screenwriter and you're dealing with a big concept, which is, you know, my TV show about an ex-president who wakes up and decides everything he did is bad, so he's going to go on a Don Quixote journey to right his wrongs of his presidency as an old man, right? Or the, the United States election comes down to one vote. These are unrealistic concepts, right? So if you're a critic, you're either going to buy into it and you get it. And then you go on the ride, like you just mentioned, you know, Roger Ebert, blah, blah, blah. Or you just don't get the concept, and it's, or it's just ridiculous, or you, this is silly, and you're never going to be on board. And that's the danger. When you do a little, when you do a movie about a slice of life, or just, just a moment between two characters, or you don't have that pressure of buying in. You're just, you're just totally into the relationship of the, uh, um, of, of who's, playing you know who's you know you know the, dy the dynamics of that relationship mm. yeah it's true and i know what you mean about the um the the, uh, the best movies um I, I remember a couple of years ago then when it said well citizen kane is no longer the number one best movie of all time now it's vertigo by <laughs> right <Hitchcock>. vertigo yeah <laughs> and i mean they're yeah. both really wonderful movies obviously but um well <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, there. by the way, when I, when I made that comment, it was more of a in line with the fact that, you know, it's when you're making a, a film now in a, in a, in a, in a modern cult, in, a, in a modern context, it's harder to, uh, to find that 
door into something that's original um, and to something that is going to spark originality. But when you do, you're also opened up to criticism because, mm. you know, and that's why I said, if you're going to fail, fail big. If you're going to make a movie about jobs, which is impossible, you know, you might as well cast Ashton Kutcher, who's going to be interesting and weird and, you know, you know, and you're going to be open to, you know, you're always open to criticism in whatever you do. And, and I, I like to bite off more than I can chew, as they say here, which is like, I like to take big concepts. And sometimes that's, you know, I don't have the budget for it. I don't have the means to really do it, but I love the idea and I'm going to make it happen somehow, you know? Yeah. And I think Jobs was really treated unfairly because um, I really like the movie. I really like Ashton Kutcher in it. I think he's doing a great job. Um, yeah. So I, I always thought that, well, that was very yeah. underrated. But, I, but I'll tell you something. I always feel good because it made more money in, throughout, it made total more money than the Aaron Sorkin version. So for me, mm. I always was like, okay, we did better. You know, it's an impossible story to tell. And I don't care whether who you are. It was more open to criticism because of, of, of the things that you just mentioned. But the other Jobs movie, which was cast with, you know, um, forget the actor's name off the top of my head. but. And he was okay in it. It wasn't like it was a bad, it was good. It was good in his own way, but that was more, that was safer, you know, but it was still a hard story to tell, but we both tried to tell it in the best way that we could, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I think you both have a, a very different focus on, the, or a, on also different interpretation, I think, of the character of, of Steve right, Jobs. Right. Um, yeah. in, in your version, I think you see much more of the, the cocky kid, um, the guy who, um, I, I don't know, identifies so much with his, with the product that he's making and not the, the, the people around him. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And we were taking more of a whole version of it where he was taking a slice of life, you know, mm. um, it's, it was a tough story to tell because he was a tough character and there's something intrinsically uninteresting about computers. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a corporate, it's a, it's a, it was basically a corporate biopic. And so, um, but I, I loved making it and I, and I really, you know, I stand by it. And, uh, and, and, and so, and so that's all you can really do in the end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I got one more quote from Winston Churchill because I got the democracy quote at the beginning okay, and I found yeah. another one, uh, which I think could be part of swing vote. Uh, that's from 1944 where he said, um, at the bottom of all the tributes paid to democracy is the little man walking into the little booth with a little pencil, making a little cross on a little piece of paper. No amount of rhetoric or voluminous discussion can possibly diminish the overwhelming importance of that point. I love that. I've never heard of that. That little X on a little piece of paper. Yeah. It's what, it's what gives us our freedom. It's what gives us our voice. It's our ability to affect the way our lives are run and that we're not and, and that we're not beholden to a pre-assigned or pre-ascribed um, world for which whose rules we are the victims of, that we are that we are actually the people and the culture that writes the rules and, and that uh, that we live by. And, and you know, the, the flaw is only is only the flaw in, in in the human experience which is that when most people want to live by this set of rules there will always be somebody else who wants to live by another set of rules an old set of rules a new set of rules but there will always be the fringe or others who do it but that's what 
the culture is these democracies are based on it because those fringe people can someday say, "Ah, oh, I don't like those rules." So they'll they can affect, and it works. And it works beautifully. It's, it, it works beautifully. It, it, it is it is it is kept. It is it, it is proven to work, and it's proven to work over and over again, country after country. We may differ. There might be social medicine in one country and not in another, but the foundations are the truth. The economy is the truth. And the world generally has opened up to the economies of each other, which I think is what has helped us bring together. I mean, Brexit and Trump and is challenging these concepts, but it's but the concepts aren't going to go away. We we cannot survive with each out each other anymore. Mm. Uh, it, it, we cannot. It's it's a complicated organism, and you know the relationship that we have with people that are on some level are um, military adversaries, but might be useful for but are necessities for oil, or and, and and things that, for example, I know Germany deals with and other people deal with, and are the controversies of our time are are the controversies of our time. That's that's what we're dealing with only. It's the geopolitical necessity to have some relationship with those who are our adversaries for our own survival until we could find our own way not to survive on them. And that's always been the strange and, and, and complicated relationship that we have with each other, that we need each other, like we need our people and our family, but we also are threatened by each other. <laughs> so there's this interesting dynamic that exists, but it's within the need threat dynamic that there's peace in many ways because we, we are interdependent um, on, on some of the things that, that, that help us grow um, and, and it forces us to have a dialogue. It forces us to say, I hate you and I hate what you do here, but God, I need you here. And, and, and those are the things that keep the world ticking in a good way and hopefully it stays that way. <laughs> Thank you.